Welcome to Thinking Like a Lawyer with your hosts, Ellie Mistal and Joe Patrice, talking about legal news and pop culture, all while thinking like a lawyer, here on Legal Talk Network. Hello, welcome to another edition of Thinking Like a Lawyer. I'm Joe Patrice from Above the Law. And with me, though not physically here, is Ellie Mistal. How you doing, Joe? I'm good. I'm good. You know, pretty fair. How are you? I've got a one-year-old's birthday party at like 2 a.m. on Saturday morning, so I'm already preparing for that, detoxing for that. 10 a.m. does not sound like a fun time for a birthday party. Yeah, well, you know, kids, schedules, naps, you know, being a parent means that everything that you liked about your life is over anyway, so... What's wrong with 10 a.m.? I also just don't get the first birthday. It's not like the kid's going to remember it. So, Ah, but the parents do. The parents do for memories that will last a lifetime. My, my uh, youngest had his first birthday uh, two weekends ago, and, and boy, will my wife remember it. See, now, now with that, though, with that, though, I kind of get it because he has an older brother, and the, for the older brother, it's a thing. For the older brother, it was like the worst day of his goddamn life because it was, you know, three hours of the younger one getting awesome presents and him having to sit there and clap. Yeah. He had a rough but I mean, time of it. Well, no, right. And that's like one of the most important lessons for someone to learn, that other people are always going to get better things and you're just <laughs> going to have to sit there and pretend to like it. All right. Can I grab my gears? Because I, I, I have a thing that I am sit of sitting, I'm sick of sitting here pretending that I'm okay with it. <laughs> sure. Uh, sure. Go, go ahead. Dude, I, I'm, I, I'm kind of I'm done playing nice about the Clinton Foundation. I understand that the right liberal thing to do right now is to be like, oh, well, you know, maybe the optics of the foundation were bad. And she, This is the most fake, made-up, stupid controversy of the entire election so far. Look, I'm from New York, right? And in New York, when we call our politicians corrupt, um, we're not throwing that term out idly to score political points. When we call our politicians corrupt, they go to jail, all right? We have actual evidence against them of high-level political corruption. Sheldon Silver, in jail, massive kickback scheme. Dean Skelos, in jail, massive kickback scheme. Elliot Spitzer, put a prostitute on a credit card, all right? If we're gonna talk about moral corruption here. Hillary Clinton, the accusations against her are, are, are she took some meetings and maybe like a rich person definitely got to call her. Oh my gosh. There's no actual evidence of high level political corruption. So I honestly don't know why this is a huge story. I wrote on Above the Law that if the Clinton Foundation had been invested in giving people puppies, that this wouldn't even be a story because nobody would say, oh my God, why did Saudi Arabian princes um, save millions of puppies? Corruption? It's ridiculous. And I, and I, I pick this topic particularly because you, Sanders guy, I'm sure has some kind of yeah, no, argument I mean, against this. Yeah, well, just it's just because I've you know, done the actual research and reading of what people are saying about it. And it's not it's not just a right-wing conspiracy thing, though those people have taken it too far. It actively is something of a problem. And I thought that the Washington Post reporter, Dave Weigel, had the best take on it, which is, you know, it's not a zero-sum game. It is absolutely possible for something to have done good work and also be an ethical 
quagmire. And that appears to be what this is. It's a bloated organization that spends far too much on administration as opposed to actually doing things. And it spent a lot of its time giving opportunities for largely ethically troubled people to have access directly to Secretary of State. And there's real... And even liberal groups are making a point of the real consequences of a lot of this. The, especially in the Bahrain situation, you're dealing with a country that, after giving that and having its meetings, you know the the people who then got gassed in that country didn't get to have that meeting. It's an unfortunate yeah, thing they just I mean, didn't have that opportunity that you think is no big deal. Is um, it though? Can we just talk? Can we just can we just talk? Can we just talk about this as men? and women of the world. Can we just talk about this with a little bit a level of sophistication? Are we really yeah. suggesting that Hillary Clinton made a secret deal with Bahrainian foreigners that went all the way up and convinced President Obama to make a special exception for Bahrain because they gave her $32 million to her charity? I mean, is that is that really the conversation that intelligent men and women think happened? Um. No, but the incredibly facile straw man you just created would be something you could beat. However, the more accurate depiction of what happened is there's access. We all know that it's not none of these situations with lobbyists or whatever are really somebody coming in with a bag full of money and buying a deal. However, they get to have that conversation. They get to be in front of them. They get to know the person as a person. And then when you meet people face to face and know them as people, you're more likely to see their side of things and agree with them. That's what's but happening. But that's not here. corruption. It, that's just the world spinning. Well, Joe, well, you, you know, take, now, Joe, you wait. take, at okay. Bubble Law, advertiser funded. We take advertiser money. If right. an advertiser wants to meet us at a conference and they've spent $50,000 on our website, we're going to go meet that advertiser, right? Right. Yes, does that well, make us corrupt? Does that, does that impugn our journalistic well, integrity? I don't think so. Well, those are completely not the same thing at all, are they? We're a for-profit business as opposed to a nonprofit that has ties to a government official who indirectly and theoretically not involved with one or the other is using the fact that money's going to one to trade off access to the other. That's a problem. I think that the right's wrong about saying the Clinton Foundation is some disastrous, awful thing per se. I think it did a lot of good. It is not the perfect nonprofit in the world, but it's a fine one. But look, this is an actual problem and really a a blotch on an ethical record. That you're, you're not, you can I just even, say you, that all, all the stuff you said. You haven't even talked. There, there's no motive here. There's no motive for Hillary Clinton to do what you accuse her of doing. That's not true at all. What are you talking about? That's at this point, you're just kind of ridiculously defending this so that you can like pretend that there's no warts on the people that I think we all generally agree that, at least on this podcast, that we support. There are warts. This is bad. The motive was to generate money for the organization. There is Case absolutely no allegation whatsoever that Hillary Clinton took any money from the Clinton Foundation. No, she didn't. They, no. Because they, it's a charity. Right. So yes. where are you getting... So, so that's, that's not corruption, then. No. Yes, yes, it is. Yes, right. actually, this yes. is this has reached the point where I think that your attempt to try and wish this away by saying asserting things louder and louder is really detracting. Look, I'm not trying to wish it away. I'm just trying to get people to acknowledge the actual way that the world works. 
and stop trying to pretend like every time the world works in exactly the way that we expect it to work, that somehow that means that Hillary Clinton is a lying, cheating, awful human being. At this point, let's move into our topic because our guest uh, literally rolled her eyes when you said the last thing you said, which I think is a good sign that we're, we're ready to move on. Oh my God, she has so much more access to you during this interview. I'm not sure if I can get a fair representation. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that, that's, that's fair. She absolutely does have more access to me. She's sitting right here, and therefore I'm more inclined to take her side on things. So, good point. Anyway, Catherine Reno, also at Above the Law, we thought that this week, because we have back-to-school time happening, we thought we'd have a little conversation about going back to school and our experiences, whatever. So, thanks for joining again, Catherine. Anytime. To be clear, I have never gone back to school. I did it one straight shot, and once I got out, I never looked back. Well, there were summers. Theoretically, right. in the summer, you that's, would do That's one things. of the hardest things, right? You know, you're having fun all summer, especially, you know, a lot of law students have been summer associates and been wined and dined, and now they have to get back to the grind. You know, finish out the law school on a high. So we're saying this episode is going to be um, feeling sorry for summer associates who just got off of a summer making $3,500 a week or so, and now they have to go to 3L school. That's Actually, that's that a is a reason to feel bad for them. <laughs> <laughs> if you went from 3500 a week to having to sit through law and insert random noun here, uh, it would be kind of sad. But let's start by talking about 1Ls, and we'll move to those uh, 3Ls coming back. So with 1Ls, that some of them theoretically might be listening to us here. Let's start with Catherine here. Do you have any advice for 1Ls that, like, from your experience as a grizzled lawyer? Oh, thanks. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I guess my best advice for 1Ls is try not to worry too much. Uh, there's not going to be any lack of people that you are in school with too many hours a day that are going to be freaking out. And anything you can do to prevent yourself from getting carried away is probably a good thing. Whether it's having friends outside of law school that are maybe nearby that you can hang out with, or you know, even getting involved in some of the more fun aspects of law school, there's always uh, bar review, drinking nights, and other uh, opportunities for fun. But everyone, I just remember when I was a one L, everyone being so strung out all the time that I just, I was really lucky. My um, even though I was in student housing, my roommate was actually a grad student um, at the chemistry department. So it was really nice to have someone to go back to that wasn't freaking out about torts. Really though? I mean, is that really the right? I mean, look, I support alcoholism as much as the next guy, but (laughs) (laughs) one can certainly make the argument that 1L year is actually the only year that matters. Um, Your 1L grades are, are... have an outsized importance on your future career prospects. So if you're ever gonna kind of cut out outside distractions, completely buckle down, and turn into a neurotic stress ball of case citations, when all year is actually the time to do it. Well, I mean, I think that what I'm saying is that becoming a stress case is unlikely to actually improve your performance on any exam. You know, I think that being able to have a sense of perspective, and I'm not not saying you should 
not study. I'm certainly not suggesting that. But I think that having some perspective on it and you actually can improve your ability to perform your 1L year. And you're right. It's absurd how much weight the grades from your 1L year have on the rest of your career. But if you worry about that constantly, you'll make yourself sick by the time exams roll around. Because that's the other thing. You only get one chance and it's in December. So if you start freaking out in August or September, you're going to be inconsolable by the time exams actually roll around. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I agree with that. I think that there's, uh, you're both kind of right. Like, there are important reasons to care more about 1L year than any other year of your academic career. But it's also true that if you get too wrapped up in it, you're going to suffer and your grades will suffer. So keep some perspective, do other things. I think, personally, one bit of advice for me is don't take anyone else's advice on how to brief cases with, like, nine different highlighters and stuff. Like... You got to where you are because you are theoretically capable of reading comprehension. Learn what they're trying to do and then do it your own way. I thought that was the biggest thing for me is because I've tried to do what everyone was saying with all the highlighters and do this and that, and it just screwed everything up. Once I stopped doing that is when I started doing a lot better. Did you brief uh, Catherine? No. I, yeah. wish I, I wish I could say I did. Um, I probably should have. I did not, though. It just... It just seemed like a lot of busy work, and I think that yeah, yeah. a lot of it was also uh, a system that was created by people who are, you know, very type A, neurotic kinds of people in order to make themselves feel like they're prepared for the exam. And it may work for a lot of people, but that's not certainly not the only way to skin that cat. I didn't brief either, and we all work for Above the Law now. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> True. Uh, were either of you guys gunners? No. I can't no. imagine a world in which Catherine was a gunner, but. No, absolutely not. N- not even a little bit. No. No. Joe? Yeah, no, I wasn't. Um, at least not uh, not 1L year. There was a 2L class that I happened to just, I got into the material, and so I don't think I was a gunner, but I definitely talked more in that. But that was a 10-person class, so kind of had to talk more. That's the closest to gunning I ever did. Yeah, I also, I mean, I wasn't in class enough to really fully embrace a gunning relationship with the material. But um, I did enjoy, uh, basically, I I accepted my role as the black guy in class, which thankfully I wasn't always the only one. But, you know, there were three of us, right? There were four of us sometimes. Um, And I I embraced the role of of that, somewhat not surprisingly. All right, so your 1L year is done. You've gotten your A's. Theoretically, you're, you're, you, you've spent your summer. You're not getting a job in your one L summer, so you know you spent your summer. Did you not a get club a job after your one L summer? Not a law job. I did. What did you do, Joe? I was half and half. I worked for my torts professor. That's not a real job. Yeah, it wasn't really. <laughs> I mean, I was, where, where's the law half of that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah he. Um, well, he was writing a paper that eventually got published in. God, I can't even remember, but it was a law review paper and I did all the researching and site checking for that. So uh, it was quasi job, I guess is more accurate. I worked for the legal department of the FDIC. Yes, I've heard of them. Yeah, there that was that was actually a really fun job. They they do a lot of cool stuff. But it didn't actually wind up helping me in my career in a real way. I worked for uh, Tom DiNapoli's committee to elect for a Nassau County executive. We lost. And weird thing is that, you know, so the election happens, you know, the primary which is the only thing that mattered, um, happened after uh, I was back at school. So I was all psyched to kind of come back down from school back to New York to at least be there on election day. 
And as I woke up in the morning to kind of hop on the train and go, um, that was September 11th. Oh. Ooh, man. So yeah. I didn't go. Um, yeah. Yep. With that so, happy note, let's move on to 2L year. So, yeah. So we go to the 2L. Uh, you've come back. So it's OCI uh, on campus interview time. So this year, actually, we haven't heard many reports from on-campus interviews yet coming into Above the Law, but we just had a string of raises. So how do you think that's going to affect interviewing? Well, I think it definitely uh, provides a little bit more levels of distinction for uh, incoming 2Ls. You know, there's there are three different kinds of firms that they are perhaps interviewing with on the same day. It's, you know, people who are on the full cravath um, money law scale. There are people who have uh, a 180 base for first years and, you know, question mark, question mark for second years and above. And then there are people who haven't raised at all. And, I mean, I remember OCI having, you know, 20 interviews in a day or some absurd number. And that's, you know, something for sure I think that interviewees will have to keep straight in their head which firm they're interviewing with, what their pay scale currently is. You know, when I interviewed, it was really easy. Everyone was paying the same amount of money. So it was really easy for me. I think it's instructive that we wanted to uh, transition to um, what you should do for the two all year. And the first thing that everybody wants to talk about is interviewing, right? Um, (laughs) One of the ways that I defend my relatively uh, subpar knowledge on IP law is that was the class that I had at 9 o'clock in the morning during callbacks. And so who the hell cared? (laughs) That that class had absolutely nothing to do with my, like, future existence. (laughs) And it it did not perhaps get the detention that it deserved. I wish I had given it now um, in retrospect. Now that you're a writer who actually deals with copyright all the time. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) I, I wish I could go back, but um, no, I think the challenge for 2Ls is maintaining any level of kind of intellectual rigor and, and focus on uh, the class materials um, in the context of, you know, a, a series of the most important job interviews of your life. Yeah, I mean, you say it's a challenge, and but is it really necessary to pay attention your 2L year? Yeah, that's that's the key. I mean, I don't want to, you know... I'm not trying to say people should not do their best at law school. Of course, everyone should. But I mean, seriously, I did not do a ton of work my two year for a lot of the same reasons that you explained, Ellie. And, you know, I never really felt like that was a problem vis-a-vis my legal career. Yeah. The one thing I'd say to that is I I didn't think that either. I more or less didn't care about those classes. But I will say I did get a in my last semester of my last year. I got, I just blew off a class entirely and ended up not, you know, falling below the everyone gets a B plus rule mm. that of law school. And, like you know, that I didn't think about it at the time, but years later when I moved jobs, not all of them, most of them, I'd been a lawyer long enough. They didn't really care about my grades and were like, oh, well, we see this body of work. But there were some who would ask for a transcript and I had to go, they'd be like, well, what's happened here? And I'm like, oh. Yes, that thing that happened seven years ago. Let me explain (laughs) why I didn't go to that class. So it is important to keep up at least enough understanding of what's going on because, you know, you don't want to keep having that conversation years down the road. Two-all year is also where a lot of people kind of go hard on their journals or law review or, you know, moot court if that's your thing. Is that right? Is two-all year the time to kind of take advantage of some of the legal extracurriculars available on campus? Yeah, I think that's probably right. Yeah, makes sense. So did you have uh, any interview horror stories? 
not me personally. I mean, writing here at ATL, um, we recently um, wrote something about some partners who had relayed some of their horror stories and managing and hiring partners at big law firms. And one of them that I thought was really interesting was when they interviewed someone, um, the interviewee took off their jacket, put their feet on the table, and began the interview that way. That seemed like a surefire way not to get a call back to me. My biggest one is, uh, and I, I don't name the firm because it, it would it, it would just be impolite at this point for me to use my position to, to call them out. But I was interviewing at one firm. I was on the callback interview. And, you know, so you're going through different partners' offices. They have a person that's kind of showing you around. As I was waiting outside of one partner's office, uh, another partner in the firm came out, got up from his desk, came out to meet me, handed me an inter-office envelope and asked me where I'd been. <laughs> oh my! Yeah, I've heard that story for you before. It oh, never ceases to uh, impress. People were uh, the the woman was horrified. Uh, she kind of stammered. Uh, um, he's he's one of our candidates. Uh, we were interviewing him today, and the partner oh. was just he didn't even care. He didn't. He had long passed the point where he gave fucks uh, about the situation. So he was just like, "Oh, sorry," and just like shuffled on back to his desk. And the woman was like, you know. That's Bob. <laughs> um, yeah, I got an offer. I did not take it. <laughs> yeah, my, my favorite, Fair. which I can't, I think I may have told on this podcast before, but my favorite was not me, but a colleague uh, from law school was interviewing at a firm that I will also not name, but I will say it wasn't Cravath. That's kind of a key to the story. He was interviewing at this, and the guy looked at his transcript and said, well, we went to NYU for law school, obviously, but the guy looked at his transcript and went, says here, you went to Yale for undergrad, but you're at NYU now. Why didn't you go to Yale Law School? I went to Yale Law School. It's the best law school. And the, my, my friend looks at him and goes, I don't know, why is it you aren't working at Cravath? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty impressed by that one. All right. I can't even imagine having the wherewithal to make that quip mid-interview. I mean, yeah, he <laughs> he... And making the split-second decision, I don't need this job offer. I'll yeah. be fine. <laughs> <laughs> Always a classic. I keep that story around to tell at parties. Although I will say just to that, I do think that story also kind of, I think both of our stories kind of shows just how much the world has changed um, since we were in school um, to where things are now. I think, Catherine, legitimately back in the day, like you didn't need that job offer. That's you, true. You were getting enough that you didn't have to, you didn't have to sweat every single OCI and every a uh, single callback. I absolutely went through callbacks where I was just like, I'm never going to work here. It doesn't even freaking matter. Yeah. 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 That's no, true. And, yeah. And we also are somewhat spoiled and we should remember that. Not every person listening to this podcast went to a T14 school during the boom. So <laughs> it's possible that even beyond how the economy has changed, it's possible that a lot of folks went to law schools where it's still very important to ace that interview because just only 5 10% of the people in the school are going to get those big jobs. That's what I was trying to say. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, so moving from that, I guess, we, we've already talked about kind of keeping your focus through interview time. What kinds of classes do you think 2Ls should be targeting? Uh, you've now got some freedom to choose your electives. What do you do with that? Uh, do you blow it all off? Do you try and take the hardest things? Where, where should you be? 
I mean, to me, very little of what you learn, no matter how you try, unless you're going to be like a tax attorney. If you're going to be a tax attorney, you, you got to do what you got to do. But if you're planning on being, you don't know really what you want to do, you figure you're going to practice in a big law firm, but not really sure what, I would just take the classes that are most interesting to you personally. Nothing you take is really going to help you when you actually step the foot in the door when you start your big law job. You're going to have to learn anything from scratch then anyway, so you might as well have the most enjoyable time you can. Take the classes that are interesting. If you think that, you know, law in early 18th century literature is up your alley, enjoy it. The last time you're going to have the time to do those kind of intellectual pursuits without, you know, a partner complaining about how much time you're spending on it. I'm Hillary Clinton, and I approve that message. Um, <laughs> I, I thought, you know, a two-year to me is very different from three-year in this regard. And while I absolutely agree that, you know, you shouldn't be specializing, right? You're like, there, there is nothing that you're learning to a year of law school that isn't going to kind of be immediately superseded by whatever the partner you happen to be working for demands week one on the job, right? So specialization is not the goal here. Um, but I did think that there was some value in taking law in different kinds of fields, right? So there, and I'm not, I don't mean just like, you know, the difference between environmental law and family law, right? And that, that's fundamentally the kind of, it's a similar kind of thought process there. I mean, really kind of going far afield and having that one kind of law class that really is kind of focused on case law and statutory interpretation um, and what have you, um, that's kind of one segment of law. Then another segment of law that's really more focused on kind of law as a functionary, right? The, the, the kind of law on the ground that people, that most people are actually dealing with every, every day, like a practical law class. And then you can also have your more, I think what Catherine was going through, your more kind of theoretical history of law um, um, type of experience. Um, I think if you can if you can have a breath there, um, you you might you're not going to learn anything again useful to your actual profession, but you might learn a little bit about yourself and about what you like to be doing with your time. Yeah, I certainly felt like as somebody who didn't have any relatives who were lawyers or any background like that, uh, who's going into it kind of blind. I wish I had done more just surveying various fields, so I could have figured out that maybe. Maybe, you know, I mean, I was fine. I enjoyed litigation, but I, you know, I may have been the great commercial tax lawyer kind of thing in the world, and I would never have known, but. I see what you're saying, but for my money that I, and my loans, um, I really (laughs) think that taking the professors too that have the, or that are just true luminaries and whatever their field may be is really worthwhile because you can always say, Oh yes, I took a class with, I took a class with Kimberly Crenshaw. That was awesome. Even if I never actually uh, get to use that in my day to day profession, it is always something that I'll always be able to say that it's a great cocktail party conversation fodder and there's lots of luminaries in lots of different fields so i think that to the extent that anybody's famous or well known that you should probably take those classes you hear that kids pay fifty thousand dollars a year so you can name drop better at parties yeah well yeah i I mean i i I, that's somewhat you're being somewhat (laughs) facetious but actually kind of yeah i think that there's stories uh another lawyer that that we interact with at times often tells a story that becoming close to his famous professor who was in a certain field, he got close to him. 
in office hours said to him once, you know, I would really like to do XYZ. And that guy went, really? Oh, hold on, I'll just get you a job and called the person who could make that happen. So there is something to be said for taking the people with poll because they can help you. Yeah. And I mean, listen, you're going to be a lawyer. Name dropping in the legal field is a time honored tradition. You might as well get good at it while you're in school. All right. Well, I, I found yeah. this part of the conversation disgusting. <laughs> Says the person who goes to Harvard and doesn't stop talking about it. Because that's the only name I need to drop now. <laughs> so let's finish up here by just going through uh, best law school stories. Any of these? Wait, wait, wait. We're not going to get the three all year? I mean, you almost did it right, right? Uh, now I we mean, talked about two all year and three all year. Uh, let's skip ahead. Yeah, three, exactly. There's really no point to it. It's a waste of your money. You do basically the same things as a 2L year, but you feel worse about it because you know you could be doing your job. When do you start studying for the bar? The last possible minute. Like the week before the bar exam? No, I mean, I was in the class, like the bar prep class. I followed that. I kept up. But I didn't, like, take time out of my day to study until basically a couple weeks before, maybe. Yeah, I think I had a very similar attitude towards it, towards the bar exam. Um, you know, and, and, and similar to what I said about 1L year, I didn't want to freak myself out any more than was absolutely necessary. I figured that there'd be plenty of time to freak out. And, you know, it, yes, it was an incredibly important test. But if I kind of kept on doing what I'd done my entire academic career up until then, I was probably going to be all right, which for me where it wound up working out. <laughs> See, this is an issue where I really think that legal education needs some reform and law schools need to be honest with themselves and start bifurcating themselves a little bit more. If you were a law school, like pretty much the law schools that we went to and the ones that we've predominantly been talking about, where the students that are at the school have generally have a history of high performance on standardized test situations, then I think is it is kind of no harm, no foul uh, to turn 3L year into an extended law and basket weaving course. You know, you're going to go through the year, you're going to finish it, you're going to take your five-week or six-week bar prep test after school is over, you're going to pass the bar, you're going to be fine. If you're a school, on the other hand, that has a significant amount of students who have not shown a history of standardized test taking well, and I don't think this has any, you know, I have a whole thing about standardized testing. I don't think that standardized testing has anything to do with your intelligence. It has everything to do with how well you are at taking standardized tests. And if you're a school that kind of, dare I say, caters to people who are bad at taking standardized tests, then I think you have almost a responsibility to turn the third year of your law school into an extended remedial bar prep class. Because if you're graduating students after that year who aren't going to be able to pass the bar based on a six-week crash course, um, then you're absolutely doing your students a disservice. Yeah. All right. I think that's fair. <laughs> yeah. Um, agreed. So, yeah. So, I wanted to get out of here on uh, on law school stories uh, well, before Joe, that you, got... you have a pretty epic law school story, as I recall. And it also has to do with quite a bit of name dropping. I do. I do. Um I don't know if I've told this one on on the podcast before, but if meh, it's, it's worth it's it. a fun one, yeah. So I was taking a mass torts litigation class with Ken Feinberg, the master of mass torts, and he see it's really useful to take yeah. classes that people are known for. Anyway, he uh, we were reading this Amchem decision uh, where there's a dissent by Breyer that 
seems to be much more reasonable than the majority opinion. At which point, this guy who was troublemaker, contrarian, you'd have loved him. Uh, <laughs> he just starts arguing about how unprincipled and terrible this decision is. And everybody in the class got really uptight and angry about this guy's trolling, this guy Joel. So the next time I go to class, there's this old guy in the front of the classroom when I get there, just sitting in a suit. And I was like, I don't know who this is, but whatever, some dude. And the guy sits down next to me and he's like ribbing me. And, uh, uh, and I was like, eh, I don't know. So Feinberg rolls in, shakes the guy's hand, and then begins in his very, very heavy accent. Last time we were here, Joel back there had some issues with the Amchem decision. He said Justice Breyer's decision was unprincipled, and it was morally, de- de- like, all sorts of horrible things, like morally bankrupt and blah, blah, blah. So I've brought Justice Breyer to class to respond. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, that's what that guy looks like, not in a robe. <laughs> And then, yeah, th- I got to watch Breyer rip this kid apart for like 45 minutes. It was, it, was, it was an awesome day in class. That is the best reason I've ever heard to attend class as a 3L. Yeah. That might be the best 3L story I've heard. That's great. My law school story is from 1L year. I was uh, funny. I was taking torts. And the torts professor I had was like a heavy law and economics guy. That's not my thing. That's not how I think that the world should work. And so really through law and economics, actually, um, as a counter-argument to it, uh, it was the first time I was really introduced to the concept um, of torts as a lottery, um, which I loved. So on the final exam, the third question, um, actually literally in the third question, says that Ellie Mistal will say that torts is a lottery. Tell him why he's wrong. That's... (laughs) That's amazing. That was the third question on my my one well, all sorts. Of and of course, you know, I decided to argue that I was right. I was, <laughs> I'll take the B plus. I don't give. I don't, I don't wow. mind that that third of a grade off for not answering the question. <laughs> <laughs> Worth it for me. All right. And you don't have anything particularly epic? I'm pretty sure I've blocked most of law school PTSD. out. PTSD. Yeah, you know, I think it was better for me all the way around just to forget it. Come on, you're a girl. Give us some kind of like crazy sexist story. Did you just say you're a girl? Tell us a sexist story. I'm trying to, you know, inspire you. <laughs> well, this one time I was working and my colleague See, said that I was a girl and I should only tell stories about that. All Wait, right. no, it didn't work. I thought you were going <laughs> to... <laughs> I, was, I was just talking about you. I was talking about you. <laughs> you're actually going to give me something. Uh, paragraph one of the complaint. <laughs> so, uh, all right. So with that, thanks for joining us for this little roundtable talk on law school. So if you are a first-time listener to Thinking Like a Lawyer, well, you should subscribe. That way you'll get all of these nice episodes every time we come out with one. You should also follow all of us on our various Twitters. You should read Above the Law all the time because it's your uh, one-stop shop for legal news on the fun side. What else? Oh, also review our podcast on your podcast service of choice so that you can give us some stars, write a review, do some some stuff to help us move up the ranks of legal podcasts and get heard by some more people. And I think that's everything in my spiel. So with that, thanks for joining us this week. Thanks for you all to host and uh, we'll talk we'll talk some other time. Thanks for listening. Bye folks. Bye.
If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can also find us at AboveTheLaw.com, ATLRedline.com, iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.